Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been studying this little phrase, in whom? Seven times in the book of Ephesians, the little phrase, in whom, is found. And you'll find Ephesians to be a fascinating book. In fact, if I was to choose a favorite of the Pauline epistles, it would most definitely be Ephesians. If I was to choose a favorite book in the New Testament, it would uh, almost definitely be Ephesians. If I was to pick a favorite book in the Word of God, Ephesians would certainly be within the top three. It's a fascinating book that goes to loftier heights than any other Pauline epistle does. It's not the great doctrinal treaties that the book of Romans is. It's not the practical handbook for the local church that the books of First and Second Corinthians are. It does not necessarily just deal with the lofty, grand ideas of life and of death and of our purpose as the book of Philippians does. It does not deal with purity necessarily in a doctrinal uh, manner as the book of Colossians does. It does not deal with the transition from law into grace as the book of Galatians does. But the book of Ephesians is rooted deeply in the heavens as it shows us who we are in Jesus Christ. Not who we are going to be. There's a difference now. Not who we're going to be, but who we are in the immediate. There's a few verses that I've had you make note of and remember. And a good one that will help you is found in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. And we've quoted it many times. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear. Actually, I believe that's verse 3 of that chapter. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall see Him, that we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. When He appears, we shall be like Him. And I'm thankful tonight that I'm not on a down payment plan with God, but everything that I am and am ever going to be in God, I am now. I may not be it in a flesh and bone practical sense, but positionally when God looks upon me, He doesn't see me uh, simply as a second class child, but as a full blood son. And I'm thankful tonight that we are in Jesus Christ. And I just want us to take a few thoughts from verse number 13. We're going to begin at verse number 3. I always like to read these verses together. They give us a beautiful context. And uh, they present only a few sentences, though those sentences are rather lengthy. Verse number 3 in many ways sums up the whole thought of the book of Ephesians when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. You know what verse, you know what verse six is saying? Verse six is saying we're a trophy of grace. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That's not my message tonight, but it says to the praise of the glory of His grace. You know what a trophy is? A trophy is to the praise of the glory of something. A trophy is something that you have that says I've accomplished something. I'm worth something. I, there's a certain uh, element about me that's admirable. If you've got a bowling trophy, it says you're a good bowler, amen, unless you picked it up at the yard sale. If, if you've got a fishing trophy, you're a good fisherman. That's what a trophy does. It gives praise to the glory of something. You and I are to be to the praise of the glory of what? His grace. That when people see us, they might say, look what 
mighty and magnificent grace can do in the life of a sinner. <laughs> Look what the grace of God can do in taking a lost and hopeless sinner and pulling him out of the miry clay and setting his feet upon a solid rock and establishing his goings and changing his life and transforming him for the glory of God. You and I are a trophy of grace. We're to be found to be the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Here's our first in whom, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's a mouthful and it's a mindful, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. Here's our second, in whom. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory. There's that idea of a trophy again. Who first trusted in Christ. Here's our text verse tonight and our third in whom in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, I know we're stopping in mid-verse, but we're doing it purposefully. We find the next and the fourth in whom in the next few words. But I want to read just the first half of that verse again. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let's pray tonight together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the good attendance. Thank you for the sweet Holy Spirit and the liberty that He's had today. Now, God, I just pray that you do in our hearts what is needful. Oh, Lord, we don't know what we need, but you do. So, God, I'd ask that you would meet each heart's need. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, convict them of their lost state. Show them their need of Calvary. If there's one that's discouraged, Lord, I'd ask that you'd uplift them. If there's one that's haughty, that they'd be abased. But, God, that in all things they might be found under your praise and honor and glory. Lord, I, I'm, I'm sure, and Father, I, I'm just trying to be mindful of you and the Holy Spirit right now. I'm sure there's many needs in this congregation. Lord, I'm sure there's health needs. And I'm sure there's financial needs. And I'm sure there's emotional needs. And I know there's spiritual needs. And God, I just want to ask right now that you'd meet those in a way that people would see that it's been your hand and give you glory. Lord, meet those in a way that would draw the attention upon you, not upon us or anyone else. And Father, we'll be sure to praise you for it. We love you tonight, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. That little phrase that's given in verse 13, I'll read it once more before we preach. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, that's a little short phrase. It may not mean a lot to you, but I hope before we're done that it means something to you. Because we find that three is a significant number in the Word of God. And we find that the third of these in whom centers upon the moment of salvation. It's interesting that the first two in whom's that are spoken of in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Do you know that's something God did for you before you accepted Christ? I want to be very careful in how I put this. I'm not, I'm not preaching a universalism. I'm not saying that you were effectually forgiven before you accepted Christ. But I'm saying that God shed His blood on Calvary to pay for your sins and mine before you ever turn towards Him.
It was something He did for you. We find in verse number 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Do you know that Christ rose from the dead before you ever accepted Him as Savior? The way was made, the price was paid, one and all, that they might receive Jesus Christ. These two things God did before you ever did anything. We find that the fourth thing that is mentioned, it says, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We find that this is something that takes place after the moment of salvation. And so in many ways, this in whom places us at the moment of decision. It places us at the foot of Calvary's hill. It places us in the shadow of the cross. It places us in a, in a location where we're going to have to make a decision. And can I say tonight that every one of us has to make a decision about Jesus Christ. We have to make it. There is no neutrality on the matter. We must all decide. You say, I won't decide. You will decide. You may in your apathy choose hell, but you've decided just the same. So we find as we're placed at the foot of the cross that a very simplistic thought is given. I want to give you three things tonight. I'm going to try to hurry. Three things are mentioned and noted that I believe are worth mentioning tonight. And if you'll examine the text carefully, you'll find it to be so. This is the first in whom that is something we've done towards God. The other two is something God has done toward us and for us. But this in whom is something that we effectually and practically exhibit towards God. It says, in whom ye also trusted. I want us to focus on that little phrase, in whom. And I want us to notice the person of our salvation. Now this is important tonight because you'll find that even though everybody says salvation is in Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people that say it but don't mean it. Or they say it, but the, what they're saying is different than what, what you're saying. You know, there's, there's a matter of semantics in this world that we live in. A lot of people saying the same thing, very few meaning the same thing. A lot of people that can talk religion... Uh, let me give you an example. Whenever the media says of our president that he is a man of faith, what they mean by that is that he has a religious background in some way, shape, fashion, and form. If you ask me what a man of faith is, it's a completely different thing. There's two different, it's the same phrase, but has two different meanings. A lot of people say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. But what they mean is this. Now listen carefully. They mean they have acknowledged the historical fact of the cross. And that's what they mean by that. But the Bible tells me in this passage that it does not center around an event or a point in time, but around a person. I'm going to try to be very explicit tonight in what I say, lest you misunderstand me, because I'm not trying to in any way uh, relieve the, the cross of Christ from the gospel. I'm not trying to say that that is not necessary. Of course, we must believe in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But let me just put it as simple as I know how. A man can believe that Jesus died on the cross and still die and split hell wide open if he's not trusted in Him for his salvation. It's about a person tonight. It's not about a set of principles. It's not about living in a way that would mimic the Savior. But it's about the Savior living through us through the power of the Holy Ghost. We find in this passage the source of our salvation. In whom? The only way we can be saved tonight is through the person of Jesus Christ. And be very careful in noting this tonight. It's not just that salvation is found in Him. Salvation is found through Him. 
It's not just merely that if we acknowledge that He existed and acknowledge that He died on the cross and even acknowledge that He rose from the grave, that not that is not enough tonight. We must go to Him for salvation. We must go to Him. I want you to listen carefully to what the Word of God says in Hebrews 12 too. It says, looking unto Jesus. And I want you to notice this. The author and finisher. The author and finisher. Both of those words describe the, the active, the actions of a living person. You cannot author anything, at least not in the immediate, not in the moment, unless you're alive to do so. You could not sit down and write a book except you be alive today to do so. And being the finisher, what does that mean? Well, I believe it goes right along with the author. I, I believe he's the one that writes down in the beginning, and I believe he's the one that writes down even so come quickly. I believe he's the one that writes the opening chapter of your salvation, and he's the one that writes the closing chapter that never really closes, but rolls on through the ages of eternity in the brightness of the glory of the Lamb of God seated upon the throne. He's the one that does it. He is the sustainer of your salvation. This, this will clear up a lot of confusion concerning uh, people losing their salvation when you understand that you did nothing to save you. You did not save you. You can't undo nothing you done and did. Amen? Is that clear? I mean, I know, I know we're, I know we're getting, getting deep tonight. But you can't undo something. You can't mess up something that you didn't do in the first place. If it's not in your hands to keep, you can't lose it. The Bible tells us that it's Christ that saves us. Now, let me pause for a moment and say this. If I believe that my salvation is vested in how much I believe in the historical event of Jesus Christ's death on Calvary, how much, whether I believe a lot, whether I believe a little, I don't even know what those words mean, but whether I believe a lot, whether I believe a little, whether I really hope, whether I hope in a very limited way, as long as I believe that it's vested in the belief of a historical event, I'm never going to have any comfort or any assurance. But when I come to the place that I understand that it's not just about me understanding that Christ died on Calvary, but I have come to the Savior and asked Him to do something that only He can do, that I can have no part in doing, that I cannot help Him do, that I cannot assist Him do, that I, I can do nothing to save myself, but I must throw myself at the mercy of His blood and ask Him to do it, then I can find assurance. That's why the Bible says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We're born again of the word of God. You say, preacher, how is that? Because when we come to God and we say, Lord, I'm a lost sinner. And I need your salvation. I need you to forgive me. I need you to come into my heart. I need you to save me. God, will you do that? There's an answer to that question. He, he will in no wise cast out any that come unto him. Whosoever will, and whosoever believeth in Him. And so what we're doing is vesting our faith in the promise of the Word of God, that God will do what He said He would do. He will keep His promise. You may backslide on God, but He won't turn His back on you. You may fail Him, but He will not fail you. You may lie to Him, but God, it is impossible for Him to lie. Wherefore, by two immutable things in the which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a sure anchor steadfast for the soul. That we might understand that it's not about what we do, it's about what He does. And the only part that we have in it is waving the white flag and letting Him do it. That's it. That's it. You ask, I don't know if I really got it when I asked the Lord to say, did you really mean it? If you really mean it, then you really got it. Amen? 
If you really meant it. Now, if you were playing games with God, then you may have made a profession of faith. But if you truly surrendered your heart to Him and said, Lord, I'm done trying to save myself. Oh, God in heaven, you must save me. He'll do what He promised He would do. It's on Him, it's not on you. We see the source of our salvation. I like the scope of it, though. Look what it says. In whom ye also. I, you know, I, I, I muddled around with that thing for a little while and tried to figure out what that means. Ye also. Ye also. Ye also. Well, you got to remember who the Ephesians were. They were Gentiles. And in the grand scope of this passage, we, we can see it again in verse number 10 where it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times. You know what that means? That means as God fulfills His plan. In the time when God is wrapping it all up, in the time when the culmination of the redemptive plan of God takes place, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in Him. The scope of this is the idea of the Gentiles being brought into the family of God. The reason that it's said this way, look at what he says in verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, he's speaking of the Jews when he says that. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Because it says to the Jew first, also to the Greek. To the Jew first, to the Jew first, to the Jew first. And you'll find the first people after the uh, resurrection of Christ uh, from the dead, and you'll find that the first people that effectually put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior were Jews. And the reason that that's a big deal to Paul is because there is a dispensational reason for it. It wasn't coincidental. It wasn't just, hey, Jews happened to be there. But it was prophetic that it would go to the Jews first and then to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. So Paul says, we have first trust. Us Jews, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrew, and he says, us Jews, we first trusted in Christ. He said, in whom ye also. Boy, I'm thankful for that little phrase, ye also. If I got a drop of Jewish blood in me, I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware of it. I, I am Welsh, Irish, Scottish, German, hillbilly. That's what I am. I think my birth certificate actually says that. <clears throat> I'm really more Appalachian American than I am anything. And I don't suppose I've got even a drop of Jew in me. But can I say something tonight? As it relates to the salvation of Jesus Christ by grace through faith, it doesn't matter a drop whether I've got a drop. Because look at what it says in Ephesians chapter number 2. Listen to how it's described. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles. You and I, we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. If we had been living uh, 3,000 years ago, we would have been alienated from the redemptive plan of God. You say, do you mean there was no proselyte? No, there's proselyting. But what were the chances of you growing up in an area where you could have heard the truth of the slain sacrifice? No, no, no plan, no process for that. You and I being Gentiles, we would have been alienated from that. God had His people, God had the Jews. And you and I, wherefore, being in uh, time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning you weren't Jews, and strangers from the covenants of promise, meaning that you weren't aware of the covenants God had made with, with His people, the Jews, and you were strangers from them anyway, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. 
For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. In other words, let me just put it pretty plain here. When it says ye also, you can put your name, you can put my name in there. The scope of this salvation is universal to all those that will believe. You ever wonder why the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe? The reason is because if any man's going to be saved, he's only got one Savior he can look unto to be saved. But that Savior will save any and all that come unto him. That means if the, if the man in the deep African uh, bush wishes to be saved, he can call on the same Savior as me. That means if the man in the deep arid jungles of India want to be saved, they can call upon the same Savior as I can. That means if those living in the remote and arctic trains of Siberia wish to be saved, they can be saved by the same Savior as me. He's the Savior of all men. It doesn't matter what your race, nationality, creed, or tax bracket, the Savior can save you tonight. And if you're going to be saved, there's only one Savior you can go to to be saved effectually to them that believe. If you put your faith in Christ, He's willing to save you tonight. We see the source of this salvation, the scope of it. Uh, But I want you to notice this. I like this. We see the standard of it. In whom ye also, it's word so important now, let it galvanize upon your heart's mind, trusted. You know there's a requirement for being saved tonight. No man was ever saved except he first trusted in Jesus Christ. I like that word trusted. I love every word of the Word of God, but but there's some words I prefer above others. I believe every word is just what it ought to be, but if I'm going to pick a favorite word, I would say this, I almost like that word trusted better than the word believed. Because I believe the word believed has been twisted and gnarled and tangled in this day that we live in. I don't believe we ought to change a single word of that Bible. I think we ought to change ourselves to understand it. You know what I mean tonight. But if I was to pick between the two, which one that I prefer, I'd say I like that word trusted because it's so much clearer. The word believe has been replaced with the idea of acknowledge or to know. But belief is more than just knowing. We think of believing in the same way that a child might believe in, in a fairy tale character. We think of believing in the same way uh, that, that a child might believe in, in a certain Christmas character or a certain Easter character. They believe it exists. They believe it's there. They believe it's real. But the word believe in the Word of God goes much farther than just an academic acknowledgement of the existence of something that has happened or is happening or will happen. But rather it's the effectual trust that we place in Him. Let me give you an example tonight that uh, that is stuck in my mind many times. A lot of people have used the analogy of the chair when it comes to the idea of faith. Well, I can say I believe, but if I won't put myself in the chair, I'm not I'm not exhibiting faith. But I don't like that. You know why? Because it almost doubts the belief of the person that is sitting in the chair if he doesn't sit down in it. Let me give you something I believe is clear. I I, I would love to travel. I I don't travel because I'm broke. Amen. But I would like to. 
I mean, that would be nice. Some of you would probably like me to as well. I don't know, but, I, you know, I, I would like to travel, and there, there's places I would love to go. And I used to use this illustration a lot in dealing with people about their souls and about salvation. I may have a desire to go to some place, but do you know that desire will not get me there? I may want to go. Let's pick a place. Let's say I want. I've been reading a series of books by a man named Peter Capstick. Any of you know that name? Raise your hand if you know that name. Any of? Well, Charlie and me read the same stuff. Great minds, Charlie. Great minds. <clears throat> Peter Capstick was a big game safari hunter in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, that, that kind of range, and he hunted all over Africa. And let's say I wanted to take an African safari. That'd be a thrilling thing. I probably wouldn't make it back. Uh, the lion wouldn't get me. The malaria would. That's just the way my luck is. Amen. But uh, let's say I wanted to go to Africa and hunt big game or something of that nature. And I had a real desire to do that. And I wanted to do that. And I told everyone around me, I want to go do that. And maybe even I told people around me, I'm going to go take this trip. Do you know I can tell people that? That's not going to get me there. Do you know I can tell people I believe that there's places in Africa I could go and hunt big game? And I may really believe that. I may believe in the existence of these places. That's not going to get me there. I could go to one of these outfitters, Cabela, or someplace like that. I could spend thousands of dollars buying new clothes and equipment and things to go. And I could give and give and give in that lifestyle all that I wanted. And that wouldn't get me there. Do you know I could even go to the airport? Listen carefully. I could go to the airport and I could look at the plane that could get me there. You hear me tonight? I could look at the plane that could get me there. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who hath bewitched you, among whom Christ hath been set forth so evidently crucified among you? I can look at the plane that could get me there. I can look at the mode and means of my transportation to this place. And that will not get me there. I could go and pay for the ticket, although let me just say, hallelujah, that in this analogy the ticket's already been paid for. Do you know that I can go? And I can go to the office and I can pick up the ticket. I can hold it in my hand. I can read it. I can believe that there's a way made for me to go on this trip. And that won't get me there. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. There's only one thing that will get me there. If I get on the plane, put my life in the hands of the pilot. That's the only thing that will get me there. I can have all the right things. I can believe all the right things. I can have the ticket in my hand. But if I've never put my trust in the safe care of the pilot, I will never, never get to my destination. There's a lot of people in this world tonight, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, that own the right ticket. They've read the ticket. They believe the ticket can get them there. They believe there's a place they want to go. They believe there's a plane out on the tarmac. They believe there's a pilot sitting in the seat. They believe there's a living Savior. They acknowledge all these things. But for them to climb on the plane and give their life to the pilot would be to give up their own authority in their life. And they won't do it. They won't do it. And they're going to die and split hell wide open. Because they're not willing to put their trust in the captain of our salvation tonight. We find the standard. You must believe. No man's ever been saved without believing. Faith is absolutely vital. 
to the salvation plan of God. But we see the process of our salvation. I'm going to hurry. I'm just going to give these to you. The Bible says, after that ye heard the word of truth. No man gets saved until he's heard the word of God. There's a prerequisite. After that ye heard the word of truth. Now, uh, there's a lot of people that have been saved through a gospel track or been saved through the story of the gospel, but they've heard this word of truth that's spoken of. Let me say that the word of truth that is spoken of here is not necessarily synonymous with the uh, written word of God. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You can go through the New Testament and find plenty of people that never laid eyes on a copy of the word of God, but they had the gospel of Jesus Christ related to them from the mouths of those that knew the Savior, and they put their faith in Him. But until a man is not born saved, that's what I'm driving at tonight. Not born saved. There's an event that takes place in his life. He's got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a point where he puts his faith in Christ. If he's never had that, then he doesn't have salvation tonight. There's a prerequisite given. After that ye also heard the word of truth. But I want you to notice there's a process. Ye heard. Ye heard. It's by hearing. I used to like what Lester Olaf used to say. He used to say, faith cometh by hearing, not by seeing. (laughs) We have too much seeing today. Too many people want to see something. Too many people want to experience something. I, I thank God for the experiential effect of the Holy Ghost in our lives. But can I say to you that it's by faith, not by sight, and it's not by feeling either. Feeling's a good thing. Nothing wrong with feeling. I like that feeling when I've ate a big old steak and my belly's full. Amen? I like that feeling when it's about 600 degrees outside and I get in that house and I lay down and I'm about this far away from my ceiling fan. Amen? And it's just... Whew, if I flinched, it'd take my eye off, you know. I like that feeling. I, 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 there's, feelings are not wrong, but can I say that our, our faith should not be based upon our feeling, but our feeling should be a result of our faith. Our faith should not be subject to the feelings. In other words, you should trust God whether you feel or not. You should, hey, listen, neighbor, there's been plenty of times I've woke up and the devil's had me just flat out convinced that something was wrong in my spiritual walk. Had me flat out convinced the Savior done let me go and, and left my life. But hallelujah tonight, He never has. My feelings told me that, but faith in the Word of God dispelled that notion. Faith is more powerful uh, than feelings when it's applied correctly, but feelings in an elemental form are more difficult to overcome with faith. You ever notice how it's so difficult to convince uh, someone that believes in tongues and believes in being slain in the Spirit and things like that? It's hard to convince them of the uh, scriptural uh, incorrectness of the way that they're doing those things. You know why you're trying to fight feeling with faith, and that's a difficult thing to do. But faith will take you a lot farther than feeling will, because sometimes you just won't feel like it. That's just the truth of the matter. Sometimes you just won't feel like living for God. What are you going to do? You going to give up on Him then? Boy, I'm thankful he didn't give up. He must have not felt like it when he walked up Calvary's hill. But he walked on and went a little farther for you and I. I believe we can go a little farther for him. We're never going to go as far as he did. But we can go a little farther than we have gone. We see the process. You've heard this word of truth. I want you to notice a third thing tonight. We see the, uh, the process of our salvation. But I want you to notice the power of our salvation. The gospel of your salvation. This is key. This is important tonight. Because it tells me that there is a particular gospel that must be believed. Uh, Listen to what Paul said to the church at Galatians in chapter 1 and verse 6 through 9. He said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, 
which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, hey, this is going to upset the guidepost crowd, but though we, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. God pronounces anathema upon those that preach another gospel. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach another gospel, any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. I don't have a problem with God post. <laughs> Sometimes you just got a barrel loaded so you fire it. But, uh, you know, I don't really have a problem. But let me tell you what I do have a problem. I have a problem with these people that it doesn't matter what their vision or dream told them, they're going to believe it over the Word of God. I've got a problem with that. Because let me tell you what Paul said. Paul said, I don't care if an angel split heaven wide open, came down to you in the in, in the slickest Benny Hinn suit that you've ever seen, with hair greased up and slicked back and ready to go and start slaying people in the Spirit. If he preaches another gospel, anathema upon him. I don't care if he's as fundamental, old-timey, independent, fundamental King James. I don't care if he's got everything right. If he preaches another gospel. And by the way, a works gospel is another gospel. Works intermingled with any element of salvation is another gospel tonight. I don't care. You may say, well, you know, I, I believe that Christ does the saving, but we got to do the sustain, and then you believe in another gospel tonight. If it be of grace, then it is no more of works. It's either all grace or it's all works. You can't have a mixture of the two. They're mutually exclusive one of the other. And if you're trying to get to heaven by your good works, you will not make it tonight because you've been, you've been, uh, you've been sold under a perverted gospel. There's a particular gospel. What, what gospel is it? It's the gospel of your salvation. It's a gospel that can save you. It's a particular gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 gives it to us. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Jesus Christ. Uh, died according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel that the Son of God, not a good man, but the Son of God died for your sins and mine, was buried. You know, that's important, that idea of being buried. Have you, have you ever wondered why that was slipped in there, was buried? It has to do with the, the guiltless state that we can live in today has to do with the idea of the, the scapegoat in the Old Testament, the one upon whom the sins of the nation would be put in a symbolic sense and would be sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Take away and bear away the reproach of the nation and bury it away in the sea of God's forgetfulness. It's important that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. It's a particular gospel. I want you to notice the second thing is a personal gospel, the gospel of your salvation. Your salvation. Philippians 2.12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, boy, I like that it doesn't say work out the salvation of the person next to you, don't you? <laughs> a lot of people doing that today. Fruit inspectors. You better be careful, neighbor. They may start looking at your fruit. <laughs> work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a personal thing. Now, no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. We understand that. And I'm not saying that there is that the gospel is a relative thing. That's not what I'm saying. Now, what I'm saying tonight is this, that if you believed in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the gospel of your salvation. It ought to mean something to you. It ought to mean something. It ought to be real to you tonight. It ought to be sweet to you tonight. Tell me the old, old story. 
It ought to be something that's sweet to you tonight. we got too many people who have just plumbed God over their salvation, and that grieves me. People that have got over what Jesus Christ has done for them. And when they hear the gospel, they hear it as the gospel. But they don't hear it as the gospel of their salvation. The gospel that like a wrecking ball crashed into your self-righteousness, drove you to your knees and knocked you off the white horse of your independence, and showed you your need of Calvary and of a, of a blood-washed salvation, and showed you your need of a blood-washed love and the Son of God, piercing and bruised and hanging naked and humiliated for you and me. That's the gospel of my salvation tonight. The gospel of my salvation is not a social gospel tonight that gives a man shoes for his feet and a sandwich for his belly and sends him to a devil's hell contented in the temporalities of this world. That's not my gospel tonight. My gospel tonight, the gospel of my salvation is not a gospel of works in which I must ever be unsure of the, uh, of the assurance of my salvation because it's dependent upon my own ability tonight. The gospel of my salvation is not a gospel of murderous violence at the edge of an Islamic sword tonight where I must take the lives of others to atone for my sins. That's not the gospel of my salvation tonight. But the gospel of my salvation is that of an old rugged cross washed in blood, stained with the love of God and shed for you and me free full pardon for all those that would come under the Savior. That's my salvation tonight. That's my gospel tonight. My gospel is the expression of the love of God given to a fallen man. My salvation tonight, the gospel of my salvation is the gospel that was shown forth in Mephibosheth when a King David looked down upon such a dead dog as I and drug him from the pit of Lodabar and scooted his feet under the king's table and laid the tablecloths of grace across those broken and battered legs and gave him a title and gave him a name and gave him an existence and gave him a home and a family and a life. That's the gospel of my salvation tonight. That's the gospel of my salvation. That's what He did for me. That's what He did for me tonight. It's a personal gospel. Let me say it's a powerful gospel. If I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Hey, listen. My gospel can save you tonight. My gospel can save you tonight. The gospel that saved me can save you. The gospel that saved me can save your children and your grandchildren. Can save your co-workers and your loved ones. Hey, the gospel that saved me tonight can save your worst enemy. Make them a brother or sister in Christ. That's the power of God's salvation. That's the power of God tonight. Power of God is not in opening blinded eyes. Oh, what a trivial thing for the God of all creation to spit upon uh, the dust and rub it in a man's eyes and give him a, a new ability for sight. Do you think that? Do you think that strained God any? Do you think it strained God to look upon a man that was lame and say, "Rise up, take up thy bed and walk"? Do you think that strained God? Everything God's ever done, He's been able to speak into existence except one thing. One thing which the Word of God couldn't even accomplish in and of itself. One thing. And that's your salvation and mine. That required the bankrupting of heaven. That required the Son of God leaving thrones of glory. Coming to a sin-sick world, born as the son of a carpenter, to bear your sin and mine. The result of that is a salvation. It took God more than just words to save you. 
It took God more than just words. To, it just took words to create this world. But it took more than words to save you. It took the death of Christ on Calvary. It just took words to step out, to pull back the veil of nothing and step out upon darkness and with His very immaculate words sling out into existence all that would be needed to create and sustain life. Just words. Think about how flippantly we use our words tonight. I, I know I know it's late and I'm almost done, but you just bear... Th- think about how flippantly we use our words tonight. Any of you ever said something you wish you hadn't said? Let's see how many of you your arm raises. Okay, good. Good to know your arm's functional. I assume if it didn't, it's because it doesn't work tonight. We've all said things we shouldn't have. We're flippant with our words. They mean nothing to us practically. We just say, man's word used to mean something. Now it doesn't mean anything. People just lie straight through their teeth. But let me tell you something. God's words were enough to create this world. But even God's words were not enough without the sacrifice of His Son. That's the power of God. That took more of the power of God than it took to create this world. It took more of the power of God than it took to open blinded eyes or raise up those that were lame or or open dumb mouths or or deaf ears. It, It took God sending His Son to this earth to die for you and me. And in that action is manifest the power of God. And that power is effectual to you and I. We believe through the Word of God. We believe through the truth of God's Word. But it took the death of Christ on Calvary to make that effectual. Tonight I want to encourage you as I close. And I just want to say to you tonight, you've got a loved one that needs Christ. I know of a powerful gospel that can change their life. You've got a co-worker that needs Christ. I can tell you of a powerful gospel tonight that can save. It's the gospel of my salvation. It can be the gospel of their salvation. Or maybe you're here tonight and you'd have to admit that you've acknowledged Him academically. Oh, you believe He existed. But you've never put your trust in Him to forgive you of your sins and to save you. Can I tell you, there's a powerful gospel tonight. It's the gospel of my salvation. Tonight, you can make it the gospel of your salvation. He can wash you and save you from your sins.